Gleeson welcoming you to chapter 118 of A History of England, entitled Someone Had Blundered, and we'll soon understand why. We're in 1854, and Britain and France are off to war side by side for once instead of against each other. This was so bizarre that some Brits had trouble adapting to it. Lord Raglan, the British commander-in-chief, had served with Wellington and lost an arm at Waterloo. The Raglan sleeve was named after him. In this new war, getting on in years as he was, he would sometimes absent-mindedly refer to the enemy as the French rather than the Russians. Even before France and Britain, Austria had mobilised its troops and then sent them down to what was at the time the southeast of its empire, bordering the principalities of Moldavia and Wallachia that Russia had invaded. The Austrians were worried about the Turks initially when they moved their forces to the Danube, but later decided the Russians were the greater threat. All that talk of supporting Slav and Orthodox people fighting for their freedom didn't go down well in Austria with its own subject Orthodox and Slav peoples. The Austrians felt that they had to get the Russians out of the principalities. When diplomatic efforts failed, they sent an ultimatum and mobilised a 100,000 men. That was hardly the kind of gratitude the Russians expected for sending an army in 1849 to put down Austria's own rebellious subjects in Hungary. But the Russian capacity to send a huge force into Austrian territory, while welcome when it was needed, could look threatening when it wasn't. What if that force ever turned against them? Meanwhile, the British and the French had landed troops in Turkey, initially in Gallipoli, the spit of Turkish land sticking out into the Mediterranean. Lord Raglan had insisted they land there, in an ironic foreshadowing of the disastrous expedition sent to the same place by Britain in 1915, during World War I. We've seen that both the Russian and the Turkish armies were badly trained, badly led and badly armed. The British Army, too, was highly unprofessional, appointing officers based on their connections, many with commissions that had been purchased rather than earned. There was also plenty of nepotism. Five of Raglan's aides were nephews of his. The soldiers, too, were recruited with little attention to any aptitude for soldiering. Without universal conscription to a citizen's army, as in France and some other European nations, Britain faced the problem that the demand for workers on the land and in factories left few of the strongest and fittest men available for enlistment. Besides, their training focused on smart uniforms and parade ground drills. The advantage the British army had over the Russians or the Turks was that they were better armed. Like the French, they used the Minier rifle, while the Tsar's army was still stuck with muskets. That gave the Allies accuracy and deadly effectiveness over a far longer range. Unlike the British, the French had a strong cadre of hardened soldiers. Not that there was anything particularly admirable about how they got hardened. That was in colonial wars as brutal as any the British fought, most recently in Algeria. At least, however, that meant they'd learned some lessons in warfare though their high command sometimes took lousy decisions too. The landing in Gallipoli highlighted a lot of the problems. The French, having given way to the British demand for a Gallipoli disembarkation, 
got themselves ashore quickly and efficiently. But they had supplies and supply wagons, tents and field hospitals ready. The British had to wait two and a half days on their ships before any soldiers actually got to land. In any case, supply problems made Gallipoli unsuitable and the two armies had to move on to Varna on the Black Sea. That was a lot closer to the fighting. It was also where the French had wanted to disembark in the first place. Now the Tsar's position was becoming grim. Austria had a large force to his west. The French and British were deployed to his south, ready to engage him alongside the Turks. He decided to cut his losses. He evacuated Moldavia and Wallachia, which was just what the nation's raid against him had demanded. So that was that, right? The Allied nation's war aims had been met. Everyone could go home and congratulate themselves on achieving their objectives with so little loss of life. Oh, what a lovely fantasy. Sadly, we're not here to fantasise. We're here to explore history in all its stupidity. A stupidity that is often, as in this case, lethal. Neither the French nor the British could live with having sent troops so far and at such cost, impelled on such a wave of Russophobia, without taking on the Russians and showing they could bring them to their knees. Or at least give them a bloody nose. In Britain, men like Palmerston favoured a general war against Russia, with operations not just in the Black Sea, but on land against Russian Poland and in the Baltic Sea to the then Russian capital, St. Petersburg. Moving on Russian Poland would win favour in France and Britain, where many supported the Polish independence movement, always ready to rise against the Tsar. Unfortunately, it would require the backing of two neighbouring countries, Austria and Prussia, and they also ruled large chunks of Poland. Unsurprisingly, they were much less keen on inflaming a national independence movement. As for the Baltic, a joint British and French fleet was able to do some damage to Russian possessions, but the approach to St. Petersburg itself was so well defended it looked suicidal to attack. Neither Admiral was particularly keen on suicide, so little came of that initiative either. That only left the Black Sea. The Allies thought they could capture the great Russian naval base at Sevastopol in Crimea and destroy the fleet base there. That would free navigation in the Black Sea from any Russian threat. That sounded like a good objective, and above all, an achievable one. Their armies re-embarked. Once more British insistence, they landed a long way from their objective, about 45 kilometres north of Sevastopol. And again it took the British ages to get ashore. Five days this time. The French commander Armand de Saint-Arnaud commented that the English have the unpleasant habit of always being late. Once the British were finally ready, the joint force swung south towards Sevastopol. The Russian general Menshikov, ordered to hold a line on the river Alma, assured the Tsar he assured the Tsar he could hold it for six times that long to allow completion of the defences of Sevastopol. Spectators drove out from the port city to see all the fun of the battle. It turned out to be less entertaining for them than they'd hoped. Menshikov hadn't defended the cliffs at the seacoast end of his line, thinking they were too steep to scale. 
the French troops proved him wrong. On the other end of the line, for reasons that remain mysterious to this day, Lord Raglan did his best to help the Russians out by having his men lie down before they'd got to the river. There they stayed for an hour and a half, letting the Russian artillery fire on them at their leisure, killing many British soldiers before they'd even contributed to the fighting. Eventually, Raglan decided to let them start advancing again. The British troops, like the French, quickly realised how to make the most of the superiority of their rifles over the Russian muskets by firing while they were still too far away for the Russians to hit them back. The Russian line broke, and the Battle of the Alna turned into a major Allied victory. And then Saint-Arnaud showed himself as capable of lousy decisions as Raglan. He blocked the proposal for an immediate advance on Sevastopol to seize it before its defences were ready, so what could have been a short campaign turned into an 11-month siege instead. It involved two more set-piece battles after the Alma. The first was the Battle of Balaclava, called after the inlet where the British landed their stores and attacked by the Russians to destroy their supply lines. The second was the Battle of Inkerman, where again it was the British who came under attack from the Russians, who clearly saw them as the weaker link of the alliance, a status rather confirmed when the day was only saved thanks to the intervention of French troops under General Pierre Bosquet. Of the two, it's Balaclava that has left the biggest mark on British consciousness and for two iconic events. The first came when Sir Colin Campbell's 93rd Highland Light Infantry Regiment formed the long line just two men deep facing a Russian cavalry charge. This was the first conflict when war correspondents reported from the front line. William Russell of the Times described the 93rd as forming a thin red streak tipped with a line of steel. Slightly misquoted, that has given rise to the expression summing up the British Army at its best, a thin red line. The thin red line did indeed do extraordinarily well using the power and range of its minier rifles to break the cavalry charge and drive it aside. If the thin red line was the British army at its best, the other iconic event from Balaclava was anything but. A number of British redoubts, small faults, had been captured and Lord Raglan could see the Russians pulling the cannon out. You'll remember that he'd served with Wellington and there was a probably mythical belief that the Duke had never lost a gun in his whole long career. Raglan ordered Lord Lucan, his cavalry commander, to move towards the guns. Lucan couldn't see the British guns. The ones he could see were Russian and moving towards them under their direct fire made no sense. He did nothing in response to that incomprehensible order for three quarters of an hour. Then he received another. Lord Raglan wishes the cavalry to advance rapidly to the front, follow the enemy and try to prevent the enemy carrying away the guns. Immediate. Still, the only guns he could see were the Russian ones. This seemed like an order to commit suicide. His division consisted of a heavy brigade and a light brigade, and he consulted the commander of the latter, Lord Cardigan. They happened to be brothers-in-law, both noblemen like Raglan, who owed their commands more to their social status than their military skill, and they loathed each other intensely. The tension between them prevented them coming to a sensible decision. Instead, they took a nonsensical one. There were the guns, here was the light brigade. 
and they were looking at an order to advance rapidly to the front. Forward went the Light Brigade into what the poet Alfred Lord Tennyson would call the Valley of Death, with cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon in front of them. There had been a colossal error of miscommunication between aristocratic commanders unfit for their job, made worse by judgments clouded by personal animosity. Let's have a verse of Tennyson. Forward the Light Brigade! Was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldier knew someone had blundered. Theirs not to make reply, theirs not to reason why, theirs but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the six hundred. Yep, British soldiers sent needlessly to their deaths by a blundering commander. A fine prefiguring of what the First World War would be. The Light Brigade actually captured the guns and sent the Russian soldiers flying. Picture the weight of a charge on horseback and you can imagine how it might drive away men on foot. But then the horsemen have to stop, losing the advantage of momentum, while men with firearms return to fire on static enemies from a distance. The charge needed to be followed up by infantry to hold the ground captured. None came. So, as Tennyson tells us, then they rode back, but not, not the 600. Of the 661 who started the charge of the Light Brigade, 113 were killed, 134 were wounded, and 45 were taken prisoner. The French general, who would later rescue the British at Inkerman, Pierre Bosquet, saw the charge and commented, C'est magnifique, mais ce n'est pas la guerre. It's magnificent, but it isn't war. Magnificent? To me, it feels like a colossal cock-up that cost a lot of lives and ultimately achieved nothing. But clearly Tennyson, and a great many in Britain, felt there was something heroic about it all. As for the battle itself, it was claimed as a victory by the Russians who did indeed capture some British guns and paraded them as war trophies. But the British were able to keep on landing their supplies at Balaclava, so the Russians failed to achieve their objective. Well, that's enough of the drama and glory of desperate charges and fine defences. Now we just have the grind of the siege ahead of us. It would cost a great many lives. And it would even cost the life of the government. We'll find out about that next week. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 